Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the task that you have given us to study it, to know it. Um, And I thank you for this opportunity to open it and to learn from it. Father, I pray as we approach it today, you would give us a posture of humility. Help us to hear this as your word. Help us to bring our hearts and our minds in submission to it and to give it the proper place of authority um, as we listen to it. Father, I pray that you would, um, through your spirit, convict our hearts and help us to come away from this time um, changed, understanding how we can walk more closely with you in our own lives, but also gaining an appreciation for who you are, the faithful God of the Old Testament, who's accomplished redemption for his people and has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for those truths and help us to appreciate them anew today. Give us clarity and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most brilliant lights of the English Reformation was a man named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer had the distinction of serving previously as a Catholic priest, not just any Catholic priest, but in his own words, a zealous papist. He said there was not any more zealous papist in the nation of England than himself, and he zealously opposed the teachings of Philip Mellington. And for those of you who know, Philip Mellington was the the right-hand man of Martin Luther, and some say we wouldn't have a Reformation without Philip Mellington because he organized Martin Luther. (laughs) Martin Luther was kind of a loose cannon, and Philip Mellington sort of brought him down and systemized everything that he said. And so Hugh Latimer was opposed to all of those teachings. However, through the work of his friend, Thomas Bilney, he was eventually convinced of the truths of Protestant doctrine, and he was brought into the Reformed fold. And so once becoming convinced of those truths, like the Apostle Paul, he completely changed course. And instead of persecuting the church, he devoted his attention to serving the church and building up the Reformed faith. Um, During the reign of Edward VI specifically, he developed quite a reputation as a brilliant orator and a clear expositor of Scripture. But as we discussed a couple weeks ago with Thomas Cranmer, during the reign of Bloody Mary, she focused on these brilliant men who were teaching the Reformed faith. And so in due time, Hugh Latimer fell um, under her her ire and her will. And so she brought him before in a farce of a trial, condemned him to death, and she tied him to a pyre to be burned at the stake. He was uh, tied to the pyre with a fellow Reformed thinker named Nicholas Ridley. And so at this point, Latimer was fairly elderly. Um, He had served 30 years in the Catholic Church before then becoming a Protestant and serving a number of years there as well. And so he was older than, than Nicholas Ripley, and so he said these words while they were tied to the stake in order to encourage Nicholas Ripley. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And our gathering here this morning as a part of that rich Protestant tradition is a fulfillment of those words. That candle has not been put out. But we also owe our existence to the courage of men like Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, and some of those other men that we have talked about um, in, in these sermons. But that kind of courage is inspirational to us. 
kind of courage shows us how we ought to walk with the Lord and our Savior. And today in our passage, we see a similar example of courage like that. In the example of the Hebrew midwives, I have come to appreciate afresh their courage and obedience to the Lord in the way they stood up to Pharaoh. So our passage this morning will be Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. I didn't ask you to turn to Matthew, something, something new. Um, and as we look at this passage, we're going to look at how do we have that kind of courageous obedience? How can we model the same sort of courageous obedience that we see exemplified in the Hebrew midwives? And the key for this passage is the faithfulness of our God. It is the faithfulness of our God that encourages us to respond in the same kind of faithfulness. And faithfulness and I looks like courageous obedience, obedience that is willing to sacrifice all for the sake of our Savior. And so we'll be looking first at God's faithfulness, then we'll see the response of wicked men to the faithfulness of God, and then finally, we will look at our response to the faithfulness of God. And so those are the um, movements we see in this passage. But as we begin our study with Exodus, and before we jump into chapter 1, I wanted to give some background as to why I think this is an important study for us to engage in at this point. Exodus is the keystone of Old Testament theology. All of the Old Testament hinges on the doctrine and the truths that are taught in Exodus. And so when we think about Exodus, we think about the famous stories, stories that are familiar to us who have been raised in the church, but also stories that are familiar to the culture at large. If you ask anybody about the Bible, chances are they've heard about the parting of the Red Sea, or they've heard about the ten plagues, or the Passover, or things like that. And so understanding the theology of this book is important for our understanding of redemption history and of the theology that we believe, but it also is important as we engage with the culture to understand the meaning of these passages more than just what we learned in Sunday school or in nursery tales from the Bible, but to understand that these stories apply to our lives in a new and a fresh way. And so the book of Exodus is divided into three different parts. First, we have the narratives that deal with God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt. After we work through those narratives, then he, God reveals the covenant at Sinai that is also known as the Mosaic Covenant, which becomes a key interpretive covenant for the rest of the Old Testament. And then finally, we see God providing instructions for how to build the tent of meeting. One commentator divides it up this way. He says it's God's plan for deliverance, God's guidance for morality, and God's order for worship. So those are the three divisions of this book as we work through it. But all of those things make Exodus an important book and important to understand, but the primary reason that Exodus begs your study and your attention during these next couple months is because Exodus is a gospel book. There is so much in Exodus about our salvation, how God relates to man, his orientation of benevolence towards those who he has chosen and elected, the depravity of man. And so as we read the book of Exodus, I hope that your appreciation for the salvation that you've received for the truths of the gospel is enriched by spending some time looking at this Old Testament book. 
And so we'll see the connection between the Old Covenant and what God has revealed in the Old Testament and His character in the Old Testament, and we'll see that connection to the New Covenant and who He's revealed Himself to be in the New Covenant. And so um, I love the book of Exodus, and I hope that I can impart some of that joy and appreciation of this book to you as we, as we work through it. So again, our, our theme this morning is the faithfulness of God, and so we pick up in Exodus chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the people who descended from Jacob were 70 people, but Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died and all of his brothers in that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So as we pick up in Exodus 1, we see that this is a perfect follow-up to what we've talked about in Genesis. If you remember, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's ministry in Egypt. And so Joseph saves Egypt from a famine by God's grace and by his understanding of, of what was going to happen through the dreams. God also uses Joseph to save his people by bringing the nation down to Egypt in order to save them from a famine. And so we pick up immediately after those events in verse 1 of Exodus. Um, The sons of Israel and Joseph are all still in Egypt. But as we begin reading this section, it comes with a note of tension. There is tension as we read this passage. Because all through the Old Testament... We're interpreting the Old Testament through God's faithfulness to Abraham. If you remember, in Genesis chapter 12, God gave Abraham three promises. The Abrahamic covenant involves three things. God would give Abraham a land, a people, and a worldwide blessing. A land, a people, and a worldwide blessing. Those were the three promises that God made to Abraham. And so as we read the Old Testament... The the plot of the Old Testament or the narrative is driven by God fulfilling those promises to the nation of Israel. And so in every passage of Scripture that you read in the Old Testament, you should have God's fulfillment of that covenant right on your mind. How is God going to fulfill these promises to Abraham and his seed? Or is God going to fulfill these promises to Abraham and his family? And so things don't look very good for God fulfilling those promises at the beginning of Exodus, do they? Remember that when Abraham died, he didn't receive the fulfillment of any of those promises. When Abraham died, the only land that he possessed was a burial plot in Canaan that he had purchased. That was it. There was no land. The entire nation that was going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky was one son, That was all Abraham had that was a fulfillment of God's promise. And so as we proceed down the generations, by the time we get to Jacob, even here, the nation that was going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore was still only 70 people. Certainly not the innumerable nation that God had promised to Abraham. And so anybody reading through the Old Testament that has finished Genesis and gets to Exodus has that burning question, will God 
keep his promise to Abraham? Will God deliver on what he has said? Now, that's obviously only a question that Old Testament saints would ask, right? That's not something any of us ever wonder, whether God will keep his word, whether God meant what he said, whether God's word is true, right? We struggle with exactly those same questions in our lives as we look at God's word and we trust his truth to guide our lives. And so I think it's on purpose that Moses begins Exodus with this tension. The people descended from Jacob were 70 people, and Joseph died, and all of that generation died as well. Things do not look good for the people. Things don't look good for God's promise, but that's why verse 7 is there. And so listen to what Moses says. But the sons of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Okay, did you catch that? Five different times, using five different words, Moses says the nation exploded. It expanded. And from 70 people, God created an innumerable horde of people. The second word that's described there that that my Bible translates increased greatly literally means a swarm, a swarm of insects or Yeah, insects is probably the most common one, but something that you can't count. There are so many of them. They're innumerable. They are countless. And so there is a vindication of God's promise to Abraham and to the people right here in the first seven verses of the book. God does keep his promises. God is faithful, and God is delivering on what he promised to Abraham. He is creating a nation for Abraham. And so if God is doing that for Abraham in this specific way, we also trust him to do that with the land and the worldwide blessing as well. And so for us as we approach this passage today, the faithfulness of our God should be one of the most encouraging doctrines that you dwell on and that you know. Understanding that God's word is true, that he does not change, and that what he has said will come true provides incredible comfort and encouragement to us as believers in in this day and age. When God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it doesn't matter how you feel, that word is true, and God will never leave you or forsake you. When God says, I am better than all of the sinful temptations that are out there, regardless of how it feels in the moment, that word is true. And God is better than all of those sinful temptations in the world. When God says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, for those of us who are believers, doesn't matter how you feel in the moment, that word is true. And so, God's faithfulness was encouragement to the believers in Exodus. It's an encouragement to us today under the new covenant. But we even can look all the way back at the garden, and we can see how the faithfulness of God and His Word was the issue that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? And so, understanding the truth of God's faithful character is essential for us as we walk with the Lord 
and it should provide rich encouragement in our life with him. And it certainly did to the nation of Israel. So we see the truth of God's faithfulness displayed in the beginning of this chapter, and now we move immediately into the reaction of wicked men to God's faithfulness. We'll read verses 8 through 14. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to oppress them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they, they, were, so that they dreaded the sons of Israel. The Egyptians used violence to compel the sons of Israel to labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and brick and all kinds of labor in the field, and all their labors which they violently had them perform as slaves. So this phrase, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, is an important phrase. It doesn't mean that he just wasn't aware of Joseph. It means he was not aware of how Joseph was used by God to redeem Egypt. And so this is a king who had no appreciation for the Hebrews or for Joseph and that rich heritage of deliverance that the Hebrews had brought to Egypt. But there's a reason why the Hebrews and Joseph fell out of favor with the political scene in Egypt. And in order to explain that, we need to look at a little bit of Egyptian history. So many of you know that Egypt and, and the Egyptian history is divided into three separate kingdoms. There's an old kingdom, there's a middle kingdom, and there's a new kingdom. And in between those kingdoms are called intermediate periods, a first intermediate period and a second intermediate period. And those intermediate periods were marked by economic and political instability. So we had these very solid dynasties that are called kingdoms, and they're always followed by a period of economic and political instability. So the specific era that we want to look at is that second intermediate period, which I believe happened right before the Exodus. I believe the Exodus occurred during the New Kingdom, and so the events of the intermediate, king, uh, intermediate period would have been context for what we're reading in Exodus. So the second intermediate period was marked by the invasion of the Hyksos. So the Hyksos were a Semitic people that infiltrated Egypt, and they came in slowly. They didn't come in as, as one huge campaign and conquer the, the nation of Egypt. But rather, they came in slowly, and they infiltrated the nation, and eventually they took over every office in Egypt, including even the pharaoh. And so they didn't change the way things were done in Egypt. They just took over everything and installed their own rulers during this period of time. And so, obviously, for the native-born Egyptians, that was an incredibly embarrassing period of history. And they wanted to do anything possible to avoid anything like that happening again. And so that is why there is this deep suspicion of the nation of Israel and of the Hebrews who are in the land. The Egyptians are terrified that something like that would happen again, that a Semitic tribe, someone from the Levant, would come in and eventually overtake the nation. 
And so this new Pharaoh is trying to do everything in his power to keep that from happening again, and that involves squashing the nation of Israel. So his first plan is to seek to kill them and to slow their growth by slavery. If he can inflict them with hard labor, they'll eventually die out. But notice again in verse 12 the repetition of what God is doing for the nation. The more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they dreaded the sons of Israel. And so even fallen man's attempt to stop God's plan is thwarted. And the nation continues to expand and to grow. God's blessing and his faithfulness continues to the people. But I want us to focus for a second on the description of the nation's life in slavery. It says that their life, they had a bitter life. The labors that, that Pharaoh put upon them caused their life to become bitter. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the irony of what Moses is describing here. God is blessing the nation. He is fulfilling his promise to them. He is being faithful to them. And the result of his blessing is actually that their lives get harder. The result of his blessing on the nation is persecution. That God blesses them and they grow and the nation expands, which results in persecution, suffering, and bitter labor. That that tension is going to be a theme throughout all of Exodus. And so for this morning, I simply want us to recognize the fact that those two things exist or can coexist at the same time. That God's blessing and also trial, suffering, and persecution are not mutually exclusive. At times, God's work in your life and God's blessing in your life also invites trial, persecution, and hardship. And when we walk through a season of hardship, or persecution, or suffering, what is the number one thing we question? We question the character and the nature of our God. We question His faithfulness. Will God keep His word to me, and will God do what He says? And this passage shows us that just because we're going through suffering or hardship does not negate God's faithfulness and blessing to His people. And at times, his blessing takes the form of hardship and persecution as we progress and as we walk with him. And so rather than turning persecution and suffering into an opportunity to question the character and the nature of our God, we first know who our God is. We appreciate his faithfulness and who he has revealed himself to be. And then we use that truth to walk through those seasons of trial and of suffering. So we've seen God's faithfulness, we've seen wicked man's response to God's faithfulness, and now we conclude by looking at how believers respond to the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and allowed the boys to live? 
The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to throw into the Nile, but every daughter you are to keep alive. So in case you missed it, verse 20, And the people multiplied and became mighty. Are you catching the theme that Moses wants us to grasp from Exodus chapter 1? God is delivering his promises. God is creating a nation for Abraham. And no matter what Pharaoh does to try and stop it, God's work is accomplishing and going forward. But as we look specifically at the Hebrew midwives, we see a wonderful example of how we as believers ought to respond to this truth. How do we respond to a God who is faithful, who keeps his promises, and who does everything that his word says? Our response is one of courageous obedience, as illustrated by the Hebrew midwives. So after the after Pharaoh's plan of, of slavery and harsh labor does not accomplish the, the squashing of the nation of Israel, he embarks upon a plan of quiet genocide. And so he hopes that with the help of the Hebrew midwives, he can kill all of the Hebrew boys, but not have any negative blowback on himself. And so if we just get these two women to quietly do this evil and nefarious deed then I can accomplish my job of of killing off the nation, but it also won't look bad for me. So the problem was he didn't anticipate on the courage of these two women and their willingness to stand up to his authority. And so in these midwives, we see a model of resisting an ungodly authority. As believers, our default position is to submit to our governing authorities We submit to those who are in authority over us because they are agents of God to enforce righteousness and to punish evil. And so the default position for believers is submission to our governing authorities. The only time we depart from that default position is when a government prevents us from obeying God or worshiping Him as we ought to. And that's the example we see in the Hebrew midwives. They feared God, not men, and that was why they disobeyed their governing authorities. And so this raises the bar for us when we think about resisting our governing authorities because it can't ever be for personal gain. It can't ever be because of our own comfort or our own wealth. It can only be an issue of worship to our God. And if, if they prevent us from being able to worship God or obey Him as we ought, then we must resist and bear whatever punishment comes because of that. And so Pua and Shipra joined the ranks of faithful believers throughout the Old Testament who resisted evil authorities like Rahab or Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and welcomed or incurred the judgment of those governing authorities because they feared God and not men. That is courageous obedience. And I love how Moses emphasizes these two individuals. Notice in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shipra, the other was named Pua. Now do you notice what is significant about that? In chapter 2, Moses doesn't even give his own parents names. 
Moses doesn't give a name to the daughter of Pharaoh who saves him. Moses doesn't give a name to Pharaoh, but he names the Hebrew midwives. He draws attention to them. And so they go down in history as named individuals that we know because of their courageous obedience in this story. So think of the contrast that he's saying there. Here is Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, the wealthiest man on earth, the one who all of his nation thought was a god incarnate. And Moses doesn't even give him a name, leaves him nameless in the narrative. But he names these two humble Hebrew midwives. And the significance of their action in obeying God and courageously saving the people. They're not named in this account because of their wealth or their power or their influence or what they accomplished in this life, the success of their business or anything like that. They are named and given value here because they were faithful to their God. They obeyed Him when it could have cost them their lives. And it is that kind of courageous obedience that God expects from his followers and from believers. Success, from a biblical standard, is faithful, courageous obedience to your God. A God who has been faithful to you requires faithfulness from us, his followers, even when that faithfulness costs us everything. So the result of their obedience is given in verse 20. God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Notice that this is the first time that God appears by name in the passage. His fingerprints are all over Exodus 1 with being faithful to the promise that he gave to Abraham. And so much like Esther, there's no name of God, but his fingerprints are all over it. But here... God specifically was good to those midwives who were faithful to him. And so we start to see a pattern emerging in this story. God arranges deliverance for his people through a human mediator. And so first it was God accomplishing deliverance for the people through the midwives. Then we see God accomplishing deliverance for his people through Moses. And of course that points us forward to the New Testament where God accomplishes deliverance for us through Christ. And so all the way back in Exodus 1, we already see how God accomplishes redemption for his people through the incarnational ministry of another person. So I think it's a beautiful picture of how God works his redemption. And so after Pharaoh's quiet genocide fails, he embarks upon full-blown genocide in chapter 22 and attempts to wipe out the entire nation of, of the Hebrews. But chapter 2 shows us that even in that agenda, God is working for his people, caring for them, and protecting them. So we'll look forward to that story next week. So in conclusion, we've seen God being faithful to the promise that he made to the nation. God keeps his word. We can trust what God says that he will do what he says, that what he says is true. We've seen how evil men respond to that faithfulness, that they respond by trying to thwart his plan, and that at times God's faithfulness in our lives actually brings persecution and suffering. 
And finally, we've seen that what God requires, what a faithful God requires from his followers is courageous, faithful obedience. And so we seek to model that in our own lives as we follow him, following the example of the Hebrew midwives. Would you pray with me as we close our time together? Father, thank you so much for this incredibly rich passage. Thank you for the example of the midwives, for their courage to follow you, um, even when it costs them greatly. Lord, we pray that in our own lives we would model that same obedience, that we would be courageous in our desire to follow you, that we would fear you and we wouldn't fear men or the consequences that men can bring. Help us to put you first in all things and help us to define our success, not by what we can accomplish in this life or in this world, but to define our success by faithful obedience to you. We thank you again for who you are, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.